When I joined in 98, there were 2.6% African-Americans in tech roles, not sales, not janitors, not data centers. And I knew this because there was a lawsuit at the time by a sales guy who left the company and said, you guys are discriminatory. And at that time, I was like, oh, I don't know. I was new to the company. It's like, eh, maybe it was your situation. Who knows? But no, 2.6%. And at the time that I had this conversation with my uh, CVP, we were at a whopping 3.6%. 20 years later, wow. 20 years later, we had grown a whopping 1%. Welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Hello, Chris. I see you're trying a different uh, emphasis <laughs> on the uh, on the intro there. Sounds well, you, nice. you, I'll, I'll mix it up, see if I can, you know, because it will get boring otherwise and people will feel like we're just recording that introduction and then not actually... You should move the emphasis. For exactly, one. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, so, it's, yeah, yeah. so it feels legitimate. Absolutely. So try a sort of Christopher Walken style emphasis. Be yeah. Nice. Different voices or something Different like voices. That. Well, maybe we have to be careful of the voices. Mm. Not to, <laughs> not to um, insult or anything like that. Anyway, how, how has your week been? Uh, well, I want to ask you how your week's been. How's your, <laughs> how's your week been, Sam? My week's been pretty good. I, um, I went to go see June uh, last night. Oh, yeah. Which and was... Uh, no spoilers. No spoilers. I'll be. I'll be. Ha I'll be careful not to, to tread these words or whatever you say. But um, I was. <laughs> I was disappointed because I didn't. I wanted to see it in the IMAX. I feel like this was a film to be seen in in the IMAX. Is that what you call it? The IMAX or just IMAX? I don't know. But I wanted to see it in the IMAX. You know, because it feels like a very vast cinematic film. And the last film I saw in the IMAX was actually Gravity. And as oh, bad no as spoilers. that film was, I haven't seen that. <laughs> well, Gravity is super old, so I'm surprised you haven't seen it. But anyway, <laughs> for me, that film was so bad that IMAX made up for it because it felt like you were in space. Really? It was great. And you felt like you were next to George Clooney, you know? And that sort of presence is, is you can't, you can't, there's no price you could put on that. Yeah, but presumably George Clooney with a 10 foot head in certain scenes because. Yeah. Yeah, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But June, on the other <laughs> hand, I uh, yeah, we saw it didn't get so, didn't get IMAX. And, where did you see um, it? It was in the O2. For me, the O2 Millennium Dome is is pretty much one of the only cinemas worth going to. That and Peck and Plex, four ninety nine, baby. So with June, then did you see like the eighties version? Because that's still on my list. Because no, I'm no, a no, I I'm haven't. a I'm a David Lynch, Carl McLaughlin fan. Yeah, but I've heard that's his. That's a, I've heard it's a terrible film, but then I've heard from people... I've heard that it's terrible too. You're gonna, always going to hear whether something's bad and something's good, aren't you? But really? I think it's cultish so. as well, and I, I, yeah. I quite get David Lynch. I quite, mm -hmm. I, I quite understand some of, some of his stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I do anyway, because I think you can interpret his stuff in a myriad of different ways. But Yeah. Mm. Um, so no, I haven't seen that. I, I've got no point of comparison there um, or anything like that. But it was... I would be selective of who I recommend it to because it's it's a very I mean f first of all it it's vast the film has such a gr grandesque kind of 
feel to it everything's really slow and really big like i Mm. i I seem to recall some weather kind of coming in they could see this weather from distance and it was moving so slowly just to give that sense of scale all the ships are just ginormous and everything's just slow Mm. and that bleeds into the storyline a little bit too so it's part one of part two and oh, is it? I think this is already two and a half hours long or something like that. So I think, and I was very much, um, you know, wowed by the, the scale and the, 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 the art direction is incredible. And it, it kind of makes, I mean, Star Wars is a kid's film, but it, it really makes Star Wars feel like a kid's film because it's like, right, put, put down your toys, Luke Skywalker. These are like, <laughs> that's the way it felt to me. It's like, this feels like an adult film. Bit epic. Um, epic yeah that's a good yeah. that's a good description so i i really enjoyed it it was a bit um disheartening that you don't get the kind of resolution that you um mm. expect mm. but then it it tells you you know right from the beginning part one you know you know there's going to be several parts so it's not i'll probably wait until it's until part two is out then so you can binge you can binge for six hours on on uh but i would say if you're either not a fan of um sci-fi because I definitely feel like there's an appreciation for just being in another world, you know, mm. being being transported and, and into just a new way of thinking, you know. Go see it. It's good. Cool. Well, I'll probably wait until part two comes out because uh. I, can't, I can't deal with the cliffhangers. Well, that being said, who do we have on the show today, Chris? So today we are joined by William Adams. And spoiler alert, we have already spoken to him. But wow, is this guy a hidden gem? So William has probably invented, popularised, and then maybe forgotten more than I will ever know about technology. I mean, we'll take a tour through his career highlights, which begin in the 80s, and boy, are there some career highlights. And we'll talk about his work as a technical advisor to the CTO at Microsoft and founder of Leap Apprenticeship Program, aiming to boost global diversity in technology. Sounds awesome. Well, here is William Adams. My name is William Adams. What? It's hard to describe what I do, but I'm a technical advisor at Microsoft. And what that means is essentially I've been there for 24 years. I helped set up the office, of the current office of the CTO with Kevin Scott a, a few years back. And a technical advisor is in a position to advise the CTO and other people around the company where technology is going. Uh, We look at a bunch of stuff, we synthesize a lot of stuff, and we help us get towards a future uh, that the CTO believes is where we should be going based on all factors. And and then we just spread the goodness across the company. That's a pretty incredible role. So when you started at Microsoft, what, what role did you start in? So 1998, I've been here a while. (laughs) <laughs> and the thing that drew me to Microsoft was a friend of mine was working on this thing called XML. Uh, and XML was back then, I, the easiest equivalent is it's like HTML, right? It's just this fundamental thing that you don't really uh, think about too much. Um, but I joined the company to work on this thing called XML. And I took it as a mission. Uh, I eventually became the manager of the group and, you know, big dev manager, development manager, all that sort of stuff. And my mission was to make XML ubiquitous to the point where you just don't think about it, just like you don't think about ASCII today, mm. right? It's like, oh yeah, ASCII. I mean, sure, it's it's baked in. Everyone uses it, but no one uses it, right? You don't walk around saying, I've used ASCII today. 
right? <laughs> unless you've done some ASCII art, I guess. <laughs> yeah, unless you've done some ASCII art, you know. Um, so we worked for a few years on that. And now XML hasn't disappeared, but from a programming language perspective, uh, if you're using our stuff like the CLR, C Sharp, it's just part of the language. And we even incorporated uh, SQL. So SQL is just kind of part of our, our language runtimes. And that was stuff that a team of mine did um, back in 2005-ish. Uh, so I started with XML. Um, I managed a, a large set of people that did all sorts of things related to XML. That was the beginning. I mean, just just to jump in there. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Really, to, th- to the way you're talking about it as well as well, as though like, oh, you know, there was this thing called XML, and you talked about you, how you wanted to make it ubiquitous. I think you achieved that. I think you got the goal. <laughs> yeah, we did. I mean, it was really funny. It started out in just IE, you know, Internet Explorer as a part of IE. It shipped with that, and then it shipped with everything, and now it's part of the OS. It's just there. Um, but yeah, that was my original mission was to just make XML this ubiquitous thing. I love the idea that we get to have these conversations about, you know, how you created something like that, because it, it's one of those things that has just all, as far as, as, as long as I've been part of, you know, doing, studying computer science, for example, and been involved in development, it's just one of those things. It's always been there, you know, for me, it's incredible. Yeah, well, and it also tells you something of my age, right? It's like, it's always been there. It's like, dude, it, it was like last week, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I started studying computer science in 2004, right? So, you know, oh, yeah, to, it was for, already there. It was already there, right? For, you know, for you to get from, you know, from 98 to, to 2004, you know, that's... It was already baked in by that point. Yeah, six six years is a long time in uh, in software, I guess. Yeah. Sorry, Sam, you were going to say something. Yeah, why did you want to make it ubiquitous? What was it like? A, just a, a a vanity project? Was it just? <laughs> did you see? Did you see a future in it? Like what? What drove that that desire? Yeah, why the heck? Um, so you know, I've been in computers since uh, way back then, 1984. That's how ancient I am. So I've been I've been doing computers professionally for a very long time, and I only joined Microsoft in '98, and I had to, a long string of things I had done even before that that were kind of groundbreaking at the time. But as a, as a software engineer, yeah, I mean, there's, there's kind of nothing more satisfying than saying, I did this thing and everyone in the world uses it. I can even um, brag that to this day, the XML and the data stuff that we did still exists in, in the C-sharp language and the, the, the C++ runtime. To this day, 20 years later, and there's very few things you ever do as a software engineer that last that long, right? Like Chris says, like, well, you know, the pace of change in software is so fast, you you forget more than you ever learned, right? But it, it's so fast that these things disappear. But XML and this uh, system.data stuff that we did, it's still there today because it is just that important. It's the, it's the drive to ubiquity. You know, that's the ultimate. Let's just go go back a little bit then. So starting in, in 84, what are the career highlights then between, you know, starting your professional career in 84 and ending up at Microsoft in 98? And then we'll go into Microsoft in a bit more detail in a bit. Yeah, in, in 84, my brother and I had this company that we created called Animation. You got a bit of the, na- the surname into it there. Well, you know, it was like we sat in a classroom for hours on end trying to come up with a name and it, it dawned on us. We were trying to do like animation and automation and blah, blah, blah. I was like, (laughs) animation, you know. 
Well, we've we've always shared a surname, right? So I've been trying to think about how how I can work it in, but I think uh, that one never sprung to mind. I feel like an idiot now. Anyway, no, no, no. It was was hours and hours with the brightest minds in tech. Absolutely. So we worked on custom software in the very beginning. This is even more ancient history. Turbo Pascal. (laughs) That was our first language that we worked with uh, to create like a program that did mailing labels, <laughs> you know, and uh, mail merge. But we worked with companies like uh, Next Computers when they started. And we were doing sales calls with Steve Jobs, some of their biggest uh, enterprise customers. We helped them uh, land in the very beginning. Yeah, I was going to say as a Steve Jobs firm after he after he was fired from Apple, wasn't it? Next. Yeah, it was fired from Apple. He said, I'll show you. And then he went off and did next and, you know, uh, created a, a buzz in the industry. They didn't hit uh, commercial success, but then they went and bought Apple. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, it's, uh, some of that's forgotten history, I think, isn't it? I don't think that many, many people really remember next. But if I remember rightly, I think all of the early, was it the early Pixar stuff was done using next machines because they were that powerful? Yeah, so when Pixar was doing their render farms, because Steve Jobs uh, so happened to buy Pixar, and they used Next Computers because they had an instance of RenderMan on them, and they would do these render farms using Next Computers. So yeah, and they had DSP processors and wonder of wonders, this thing called an optical drive, you know, (laughs) it was slow as molasses, but it was unique at the time. And, you know, these big old 250 megabyte uh, cartridges that you stuck into the thing. So yeah, we did Taligent, um, which was another thing. It was a joint between uh, Apple, IBM and uh, HP at the end of it. It was a joint venture where they were trying to create an operating system. It was called Pink at the time initially. But we had developed a lot of technologies while we we're on the next computers, things like today you use uh, instant messengers of all varieties, right? And uh, back then is uh, what about 19, 1990, we had this thing called Livewire, um, which was this technology that enabled you to do anything collaborative. So if you wanted to do a chat program like we do today, you know, any pick your instant messenger. Um, we had that, and we had developed it for this uh, Alain Pinel real estate company. They would have someone at a front desk answer a phone, and then they would route to the agents back in the office, and they would do it by doing instant message with them. They would click on the thing and type, hey, so-and-so's on the phone. Do you want to connect with them? And they would be able to talk back you know, while they're still on the phone saying, no, take a message or whatever, right? Uh, so we had instant messenger stuff going on like that back then. Was that as well adopted back then? Were people into it at the time or was it like, this is never going to catch on? No, it wasn't. Well, it was a novelty at that time, right? Because we didn't have the broad internet, remember? So this was within the office that we were doing it. So 10 base T coax networking, you know, it was was precursor to, I mean, we had the internet, but it was nothing like it is now, right? Just think back to 1990s internet. It was literally documents at universities. And the last thing we had of that was this collaborative thing where you could edit a Word document, if you will. It wasn't Word. It was our own editor. And multiple people could add it at the same time. Oh, wow. That's quite groundbreaking at the time. 
Yeah, it was. We even, I got a patent for it. And there's a bunch of subsequent patents that Microsoft and other people got that all refer back to this patent. You know, um, that, yeah, it's the early 90s and the subsequent patents. If you look them up for Microsoft, it's like 1994 is when Microsoft did a lot of patents. Um, but at that time, there was like uh, Olivetti, uh, NCR, for some reason, these cash register companies were trying to do this. There are a couple of, of other big companies that had this. And then there was me. <laughs> right? wow. And I got this patent. And this is what Taligent actually bought from us, was the ability to put this collaborative capability into the OS. So any application you created in this Taligent environment had this collaborative capability. And what, this is, yeah, 19, early 1990s. No one did anything with that because they just didn't 30 years later. And now everyone's doing it, right? I mean, we're doing this across the internet. We're doing collaborative computing, blah, blah, blah. But that's 30 years ago, yo. <laughs> Get with the times, yeah. <laughs> that patent, have you ever tried? Do you do anything with that? Is it just the knowledge that you've got the patent or do you try and enforce it in any way, shape or form? Or is there anything you can do with it? No, no, no. That patent got assigned to Taligent when they bought our uh, technology. So that's Taligent. And it's gone nowhere. I think Apple is the current holder of it, but it's expired by now. So it's it's whatever. I wasn't big enough on my own to do anything major with that. The timing was not right. And I wasn't, what, financially flush enough to try and go and enforce that. So assigned to Taligent, give me my few hundred thousand dollars for this contract and we're done. That's the funny thing about patents, I suppose, and the benefit of having them and how you can enforce them and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you really, you have to look at patents and how they're used. I mean, mostly patents are used by larger corporations to just kind of as a defensive front, right? It's like, you want to do something, you you work with IBM and you say, look, I've got these hundred patents, you've got those hundred patents, let's just put them all on the table and let's collaborate. And that's how, really how you use it, right? And sometimes you use it in license deals. I think Microsoft... I used to teach this and we would make like a billion dollars a year off patent licensing. That was like 15, 20 years ago. But yeah, it's 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 like that. And the little guy, you know, patenting something and then make, striking it rich, more than likely a bigger guy is going to come along, do something slightly different and create a patent and then crush you with your own technology. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's a tricky game, those patents. So, I mean, that's... Again, another incredible ubiquitous thing that you managed to create around instant messaging and and collaborative documents. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because it's like you and I, we're sitting here, we're joking along and it's like, oh, this guy, really? Come on, seriously? No, really? <laughs> really? We had this 30 years ago. I get off my lawn. <laughs> when, when we set out to do this podcast, it was for, it was to have these conversations you know, with the people that, you know, are, people don't necessarily know who you are necessarily. Uh, you know, there's not going to be that many people in the world who are aware that you created all of these things or you've been involved in all of these things. This is why we wanted to have the conversations because so many people in technology go unsung, you know. Yeah. And I would be remiss if saying like, I did not invent XML. I worked on the team that for Microsoft that made it ubiquitous. You know, my manager was this guy named Jean Pauli, who was actually an author on the original XML spec uh, with the W3C. So, you know, it, it's a team sport. 
Um, but yeah, that patent on collaboration was me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's better than XML, in my opinion. I mean, <laughs> I thought it was. It was clever. I was smarter when I was younger, and now I'm so dumb. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I use collaborative collaborative stuff every day, and I remember, you know, even just a decade ago, how frustrating it was to not have that functionality in, like Microsoft Word, for example. You know, obviously Google was the thing that brought you know, all the the really wide open collaborative documents. And then these days we've got brilliant technology like Miro and stuff. But it's amazing to think that that was invented as a sort of as a proof of concept 30 years ago. That's insane. What a development of history that is. Yeah. And the key aspect to it was the key thing that that dawned on me for the collaboration stuff was this um distributed locking mechanism that I came up with. Nowadays we have lots of uh, things that do this. And we have blockchain, for example, that do in-order execution of things. You know, it, it's just a thing now, right? There's plenty of science around it. But at that time, there wasn't. So it was just coming up with, how are you going to do distributed? Uh, we also did things like, I had these real estate offices. And nowadays, we have Zillow, you go online, or Redfin, or any of those real estate things, you look up properties. No- yeah, we have like Zoopla, I think, don't we, in the UK, Sam? And then, mm-hmm. you know, Fill in your own one wherever you're listening in the world. <laughs> right. Roll back the clock 30 years, and we didn't have that. We had what we call the MLS, Multiple Listing Service. And it was like a, a database online. You had to have a subscription, all this sort of stuff. So we wanted to have a local cache of all that information so that the agents wouldn't have to go through the interface. It was really clunky. <laughs> they wouldn't have to go through that interface. We could have it locally so it's fast. So looking up properties was instantaneous, right? We just had a list and you would just type in your criteria. And the way we did that was we essentially copied the database and then we had to synchronize it um, across these five different real estate offices. Not having live internet really is like, okay, how are we going to do this? So we synchronized by batching up a transaction log from each office. And then at night we would email it, uh, that log to the other four offices and they would locally all reconcile those logs against the local database and bring them all up to date. So by the morning, they were all in sync again, right? And in the meantime, you're caching locally and then you do this every night. So it's like, yeah, we actually did log-based database synchronization over email, you know, automated. This is like eventual (laughs) consistency. Yeah, eventual consistency. And that was exactly the thing. It's like, you know, young man, you've, you've been reading a lot of books. Like, yeah, now I'm going to go implement this thing that I just read about. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Eventual consistency via email. I love that. <laughs> yes. And that's what trained me on that whole concept of eventual consistency. It's like, yeah, okay. Even if you get down to the millisecond, you're still eventual consistency. There's no such thing as absolute concurrency, right? Nothing happens exactly at the same time in our world. It's always a nanosecond later, one or the other. All you have to do is make sure that that nanosecond later is the same for everybody, right? So the timescale doesn't matter, but the technology or the technique of how you do the synchronization is the thing that really matters. So uh, when you came up with that solution for how you were going to, I mean, I realize that we're, we're focusing quite heavily on like 30 years ago here, but it's, it's honestly finding it fascinating. <laughs> That's all right, it's all downhill after that. <laughs> <laughs> but when you, when you came up with the idea of how you were going to solve this problem of like document collaboration, I mean, how did you come up with that idea that you were going to, how that you were going to be able to, well, keep, keep things in sync? 
Yeah, well, there, it was uh, problem driven. So like I said, with the, the real estate agency, we had this actual problem where we had these databases and you had to be able to sit in any office and see an, a relatively updated version of that database, right? Because we're keeping it offline. We were saying, yeah, you don't need to go online. We'll have the machine go online and download stuff from the LMLS, but then we have to keep everything cached and up to date locally. So there's an actual problem that our customer had is to keep these databases up to date across these five offices. Nowadays, I would just send messages over the inter uh, internet live. I wouldn't even have to do this batched update thing, but this is what I had to work with. So I just thought about it. And, and in my younger days, I was quite into, um, I would get into a, a state where I would program essentially in my head. And I would literally stand in my office against a wall, maybe a foot from a wall and just kind of stare up, you know, because I was trying to block out all sorts of stuff. So, you know, I would just get in a space and I would literally take problems to uh, sleep. And I would, uh, I actively did, uh, I did self-hypnosis. I did active dreaming. I did all sorts of visualizations. And this stuff would just come to me in a dream and I would solve a problem. I wouldn't remember how I solved it, but I would remember that I knew how to solve it. And then I could go back to the, the keyboard and go, I know I know how to solve this. So let me just start typing until it gets solved, <laughs> right? So it would, it would just be like that. I would just kind of sit back and go, this is solvable. I know it's solvable. Now let me just figure it out. It's just a matter of language at that point. Yeah. In, in hindsight, are you able to trace back where certain influences came from or whether there, there are any kind of like subtle nudges from, I don't know, existing technologies or anything like that? Uh, that you can pinpoint, or is it completely just blue sky, just kind of pinching? Did nothing like this exist? Oh, it's not, yeah, it's not total blue sky. There's two things that existed. One, first of all, uh, I had read a, a biography of uh, Nikola Tesla, um, one of the, if not the world's best inventor ever. This practice of visualizing, I actually um, borrowed or nicked from him. I read it about him, that this is how he did was a lot of visualization in his head. And I was like, that seems like a good technique. So let me, let me borrow that. And then as far as the technology itself, you're, you're very often not standing on your own. So I read tons of stuff about operating system design and, you know, language and, and all sorts of stuff of the day. And just keep in mind that this is all modern and current at that time. You could actually go and pick up books on, on current subjects. Nowadays, it's harder to find. If you don't find it on Reddit, it doesn't exist. But I read a lot and I would extrapolate from those things and come up with my own solutions. Like there's no book that said, this is how you synchronize databases across email systems, <laughs> right? It didn't exist. But the word eventual con, uh, consistency is existed. So then extrapolating and saying, okay, that's the methodology. Now what's the practical implementation given the set of constraints that I have, right? This is where invention comes. Uh, can I give you another example? Oh, definitely. We've got the time. So <laughs> <laughs> another example we had was, uh, again, with the real estate office. And, and I like this one because it's still kind of unique for even today, 
each agent and in an office, there's maybe 30 agents, 30 desks. Not all the agents are there at the same time, 30 desks. And each one of them needs to be able to go out, um, dial up these various services through their computer. They had modems. For the, we didn't want to have 30 modems throughout the office because that's just a bit much. You need 30 phone lines, right? So we wanted to um, say, okay, we're only going to have five modems, all right? But I'm not going to tick the modem up, move it over to someone else's desk. And say, okay, now you can go dial the internet. Okay, <laughs> now you can go dial. Okay, now, you know. So what we did was we said, all right, let's have five modems and put them on five machines. And we'll, um, when you need something that needs to go out to the internet, the app will essentially go to the modem pool and say, I need a connection. And one of those five machines, if they're not busy already, will say, okay, I'll connect you. And then they'll do a TCP IP connection between those two machines within the office. And then that one machine that's actually connected to the modem will go out and talk to whatever it's talking to, the internet. So we had this thing, a modem pool that was locally served over TCP IP. And it would do things like, well, if there's not a modem available, then it'll pop up and say, well, I can't make a connection right now. You know, just like if I couldn't make a regular TCP IP connection. So that was the novelty. And it, again, it comes from... I'm constrained. I need 30 people to be able to get to the internet, but I don't have 30 connections. But it sounds like this is drawing on, you know, how you would connect a phone line. It's going through a telephone exchange and someone's going, hello, how can I connect you? You know, right. <laughs> so we essentially created an internet exchange, if you will. And that, I mean, nowadays you think, why is this interesting at all? You just stick a switch in your thing, you hook it up to the cable modem, you're good. It's like, no, we didn't have that. <laughs> but this right. is that magic that sits underneath it all because these things still exist, but in yeah. a different way. You know, like th this is now a few, th this is now just like taken for granted part, a library probably in something, you know, this just happens. Right. You don't even have to worry about it. You plug in your cable modem and then you stick your router in your house. And now you can have 50, 100, 200 people connected to the internet from their cell phones. We didn't have that. Just think of this those kind of routers did not exist. <laughs> we didn't have NAT. We didn't have NAT behind a firewall on a router, right? Didn't exist. We had dial-up, <laughs> right? We had modems, 300 baud or 1200 baud, whatever it was. I, I was going to ask, like, you, you're talking about stuff that you developed in 1990, like pre-internet. Did the onset of the internet obviously created a whole load of new problems for you to solve, but did it help you think differently about stuff? Did it affect the solutions that you were designing? Yeah, um, let's see, what's the what's the first, I'm trying to think of what's the first internet scale thing that I really um, dealt with at Microsoft. So there was the XML stuff, and that, that didn't have to do with the internet, other than we, we shipped quickly. But I think the later stuff, I was part of the creation of the earliest services on Azure. Uh, we're skipping around here. Uh, there's a, If you want to get the complete history, uh, the, the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley actually did a story on me and my brother a while ago that's kind of out there now. We'll have to put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll find a link. But there's uh, this thing called Azure. <laughs> and uh, back in 2011-ish, the very first services on that thing was this one called Access Control Service, uh, ACS. Uh, ACS now means something else, but then it was the access control service. And this was basically your identity on Azure, right? 
and then there's this other thing called service bus, which was the basic thing that had connectivity so that you could have queues and do message passing from your application. So these are the first two services on Azure besides the core of Azure, which was I can get a VM, I have storage, um, and I have basic networking. That was the core of Azure. These were the first two actual services on top of Azure. ACS became what we now call Azure Active Directory, AAD. And Service Bus has been superseded by other things like this thing called Event Hub uh, and whatnot. And Service Bus itself is now kind of deprecated. But these were the first services where we said, oh, uh, internet scale services there's something different about this than your classic on-premises software, right? On-premises, meaning you know, at your, your actual company. That's just kind of easy because there's only a few thousand users <laughs> at most, right? Maybe a hundred thousand at the outside and they're spread all over the place. But now you're doing world-scale services, you've got millions or hundreds of millions of, of users. You have issues, to answer your question, uh, you have issues uh, like, okay, telemetry. So when you're doing ACS, it's tokens. You're issuing tokens, like someone tries to log in and you're issuing a token saying, yes, you are that person. And then they're applying that token. And then you're checking to see, is this token valid for this service and blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of uh, transactional things related to identity. At first we're like, okay, how are we gonna bill for this, right? Um, do we bill? per transaction, per token, per what do we bill for, right? And in order to bill something, you have to measure it. So you have to keep track of the fact that this user got this token and we validated it against this service. That's a lot of data. There's more data in trying to track this thing than there is the actual thing, right? You've got a terabyte of log data for a gigabyte of, of actual transaction information. So you run up against stuff like that where it's like, okay, maybe this thing is so fundamental, we're not gonna charge for it at all because it costs us more money to track how it's being used than we're actually gonna get in revenue. So let's make it free. And then how you debug things is different. Uh, when you have live site issues, meaning, oh my God, a customer's having a problem. It's tricky because not only are the servers not accessible, they're in the cloud somewhere, but I can't even access the servers directly from my machine because who, what machine is that? That's not a secure machine. And you can't really look at the customer data because it's customer data. Don't, don't, don't you dare download that data to your local machine, right? So you had to invent a whole process of, all right, if you're going to service, uh, if you're going to deal with live site, as we call it, you have to have a whole mechanisms for how and when you can actually access data, the, the channels through which you can do that. We have these machines that are highly secure that you have to do it through, all these sorts of things. And then debugging, it's like, you're gonna debug something that happened five hours ago. You don't just jump in and attach the debugger and say, oh, there's the bug right there. You know, you're trying to debug something that happened five hours ago and all you have is maybe a crash dump maybe some log information. So we got a lot better about how do you instrument your software such that you can debug it five hours later and not actually touch any of the processes that were involved. And do not bring down the services while you're monkeying around. 
<laughs> See, I, uh, I I remember around sort of 2010 sort of time or whatever, I was working for um, a company in the UK called Love Film. And Love Film eventually became Prime Video from Amazon. Oh, yay. Yay. <laughs> uh, we actually had a few ex-Microsoft people came over from the Silverlight team and joined us at Amazon, actually. As it oh, Silverlight. So Look at that. <laughs> there, was a, there was a Seattle love-in between Microsoft and Amazon at one point, definitely. But the, uh, <laughs> the, the thing I was thinking about was uh, one of the projects that I led was to do the migration from LoveFilm servers, which you know were in a, a data warehouse or a data center, let's say, in the UK. And we were moving them to AWS. And that was a big shift for that company because we'd never done data center to, to cloud stuff. Because you're trying to work out, okay, well, to your point, how do I see that server? Like, you know, we could take the data. How are we going to get the data from this data center to to Dublin, for example, in an AWS data center? Because we'd had conversations about how do you migrate data? How's this going to happen? One of the guys had even said, oh, we know we had uh, we had an issue where the database crashed at one point. I go, oh, the database crashed in the move. Yeah, it was in the back of a taxi and the taxi crashed. And like, <laughs> okay, well, that's a different- Literally um, crashed. Okay. That's, a, that's, a, that's a different story altogether. But you try to have a, a conversation about like, well, if we took the data to uh, to AWS, like you're never going to be able to find which server it is that's actually serving your data because it's a massive great warehouse full of servers. Like it, it's such a mindset shift from like that on-prem to the cloud concept. And I was wondering from from your side, how did you deal with like, like Microsoft at the time? I suppose was still very much in that selling licenses to software and you know it was you know on-premise installations and all that sort of stuff and you talked about the you know trying to find the price point but like how did you find the scale because you know you're expecting to have so many more customers hit the system than the thousand as you mentioned that might be in a building and and you're responsible for it right yeah yeah like absolutely. on prem you're not really responsible they have their own you know IT department and they deal with their own servers and all that sort of stuff and now suddenly it's us you know and it's kind of a throwback to the mainframe days right where it's like centrally operated by IBM and don't you worry your pretty little head <laughs> so the, yeah there's a lot and we're still learning i mean all of us are still learning i don't think it's i don't think we've cracked it for everything i mean newer customers bigger customers different workloads are coming online all the time this past year with covid proved to everybody it's like you thought you had this nailed but not at this scale, <laughs> you know, and we instrument things and we have automated machine learning models that that will predict uh, usage and so that we can provision because you've got to get machines months in advance. You can't suddenly say, oh, we need we need 100,000 new servers. We'll get in line, buddy. <laughs> There's not enough servers in the world to service your needs. So you better plan ahead. So yeah, it's it's a whole basket full of new challenges and they keep emerging every day, right? But yeah, we we just keep on adapting and moving and learning and growing. So which which was the cuz the, the the price point is a really interesting one, but like which was the hardest part to try and solve? Was it was it that, you know, how are we going to charge for it or was it the, you know, how are we going to deal with the scale or cuz I suppose at that time that you're talking about, like 2010 or whatever, 
you probably had your eye on what AWS were doing because obviously they were the first in the marketplace. And, you know, I think Azure has always been sort of second, I suppose, in terms of, you know, for a long time at least. Yeah, I think the the initial things that we were concerned about uh, weren't quite about scale or about feature sets. So back then, the only features for anybody was VMs, storage, and uh, network. That was it, right? And we had our various things. We had two or three different storage things that we went through, and now SQL Server is you know a, a thing on uh, in the cloud, and it wasn't initially. Uh, and there was actually fights about that uh, within the company about, oh, you know, why do you have this stupid store thing? We've already got SQL Server. It's like, yeah, but that's not scalable, <laughs> you know. And it wasn't, <laughs> you know. It's like, ah, we can handle terabytes. It's like, yeah, well, how about petabytes <laughs> and no SQL Uber Alice? So you know, it was, <laughs> it, there was a lot to be learned, and and you even had things like, oh, Linux, get out of here! It's all Windows. Like, no, it's not. The customers want Linux, and now we're all Linux. So there was a lot to learn. There was a lot to learn, and the challenges were certainly, like you said, there's there's technical challenge. Like, how do you make a service that is distributed? You now, ha- I had to learn things like, oh, L three, what's that? you know, level three and all these other, and how do you distribute your front ends and how do you have concentrators and how do you fan out and how do you scale up and, you know, single points of failure and all that stuff, all the technical stuff. And then you get down to what does the service actually do? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to learn in all of that stuff. And it was completely Completely new. And the the kinds of people that you need to program that stuff is also different. And you're worried a lot more back-end stuff than you are front-end stuff. And we were probably much more front-end loaded before. So a lot of new skill sets, you know, whereas in the past, I would hire people who were doing back-end. It's like a key feature is you know how to do Windows kernel debugger, right? But now it's like, well, you're never going to touch the kernel. What you really need to know is about uh, fault tolerance and uh, scale and scale units and all these other sorts of things, right? That's more interesting. So, I mean, we, we've skipped around a little bit. So let's let, let's take a little whistle-stop tour through your Microsoft history then. So starting in 98 then with the XML stuff up to, up to present day. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> whew. Have you got some of that tea? <laughs> tea? No, we're still, we're still coffee oh, drinkers coffee. over you here. Need you need know. some coffee. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 98, I did the XML thing, and I um, helped grow a group for a few years. And I had an engineering team. at The, the biggest, it was like 64 engineers. And uh, at some point, we said, oh, I want to do, do a special project. And my boss said, all right, you, you can take the pick of the top six engineers and go off and do a thing, right? And the thing that we did, um, we worked with uh, one of our best language guys in the company, Anders Hausberg. He was the inventor of C Sharp and before that Delphi and Turbo Pascal, you know, famous dude. And we worked with him on what eventually, uh, we called it Zen at the time, and it eventually became known as System.Link, L-I-N-Q, Language Integrated Query. And this was the, the whole ubiquitous thing of making XML and SQL baked into the language. It actually took us seven years to get fully from first whiteboard to it's in all the products. It's just baked in. And we did that because we were trying to compete against Java at the time. And the mandate was 
do something that Java can't do easily. And we eventually landed on this language integrated query stuff. And now it's just, there it is. All right. So that was like 2005-ish is when I left that. And it had a few more years to bake before it got into all of our language runtimes. And I went to India. I joined a group called Engineering Excellence. Why did I go to Engineering Excellence? Well, I had a path to, to take. It's like I was some big engineering manager. It's like, you can become a product unit manager or do something else. And I took the other path because I wanted to learn how to teach engineers how to be better engineers. Why? Because at that time, we had the internet scale viruses. So things like Code Red, Slammer, you know, these are things that took down the internet, <laughs> you know, and caused us a billion dollars of lost sales. And this was the birth of what we now call trustworthy computing, because we had to reestablish that you could trust us, right? So the internet became ubiquitous. Microsoft was on every desktop and most servers. So a virus on us could do things like take out the internet, right? So, and at that time, we weren't the best at like keeping track of how we built our systems. Was our build process even repeatable? Could we pinpoint fix a bug? Did we have unit tests? Did we even do code reviews? Um, at that time, the answer was code reviews. Why would we do that? We do the code, we throw it over the fence and the testers find the bugs. That was the attitude. <laughs> and that was the industry attitude, unless you worked at NASA. <laughs> well, we've covered that in a previous episode as it happens. But <laughs> <laughs> So uh, at that time, I, I shifted to engineering excellence, which was all about teaching our engineers how to be better engineers. So I taught everyone from newbies, you know, like new to role, like fresh out of college. What is the role? What do you do? Design techniques, blah, 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 all the way up to architects. Like what's the role of an architect? You know, how do you best service your organization as an architect, right? And even how to be a, an engineering first-line manager, second-line manager, all that. And so as part of that, I said, oh, uh, they're, they're growing in India. We had a development center in Hyderabad. And I thought, I want to go either Hyderabad or China. I went to both. And the guys in Hyderabad said, we really want you to come here because we have this problem where we hire all these college hires every summer. And within a year, they're gone because we can't absorb them fast enough. And so they leave and they go across the street to Vipro or Satyam or, or Tata and they pay them 15% more and they're, they're gone, right? Yeah, I, we actually had the same, exactly the same problem when I worked at Tesco as well. Like they were great at bringing people into Bangalore. We were in. not keeping them. Yeah, they bring them in, give them a load of knowledge and then they go and get more money. <laughs> Somewhere else, across Somewhere. the street, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I went to India and I taught for three years and I built um, I built these uh, classrooms with blade servers and desk uh, PCs and cameras, all this, all this wild stuff. So I did that for three years and I, I processed through about a thousand um, new college hires in that time frame. And I created this. Oh, this will be good. I created this program called LEAP, LEAP Engineering Acceleration Program. The intention was to stop the revolving door of the college hires, right? And so they came to me for five weeks before they went to their actual engineering teams. So we had three cohorts during the summer. Each one was like 100, 120. And I would just train them up. You know, we got into groups. It's like a, like a boot camp. It was like boot camp, five weeks of boot camp uh, with me and, and there's a, a woman who was uh, in the test discipline and she would teach them about test stuff and I teach them about all the writing code stuff and we'd have PMs come in and stuff like that. Fun time. 
once we did that, people didn't leave, right? Um, because we said, oh, well, you need a cohort because you need a buddy. People were leaving because they're like, I'm, a, I'm alone, right? But when you bring them in in cohorts, it's like, oh, look, no, there's seven other people sitting at your table and there's a cohort of 100. You now have friends. So people didn't leave anymore other than, oh, I'm going to go off and get my PhD or I got married, I got to move or whatever. But they just didn't, they didn't leave after that. Uh, so I came back from India, just got in under the door in 2010 as we were hitting that recession hard. And uh, the door was closed. It's like, we're not, no hires, no transfers. You know, I could have been stuck in India or without a job, but I got back. And that's when I started with the group that was doing that ACS and service bus on Azure stuff, right? Uh, I did that for a while. I floated into identity and did some stuff. And then I, I joined a group briefly that was um, Linux on Azure, uh, which was fun. And, and that was at a time where it was like, Steve Ballmer was still in charge of the company. It's like, Windows, Windows, Windows. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, but in this cloud game, if you don't have Linux, you're just going to lose the customers. That's all there is to it. The world has changed. Kubernetes is king. All that Windows-only stuff just isn't going to cut it anymore. We got to, you have to have Linux. Because this is around the time of the, the most recent sort of, it's almost a bit like a revival, I suppose, for Microsoft, isn't it? In, the, in this sort of transition to Linux. During this time was, okay, Bomber's there at the beginning. And by the, you know, within a year, he's, he's sunset and Satya is now in charge, right? And Satya is like, all right, let's reset. <laughs> he wrote a book. <laughs> it reset, right? And how we do things matters, you know, growth mindset. And yeah, that whole, we within the scope, within the space of about three years went from, we only have two products, Windows and Office. To you Windows guys, you now report to the Azure guys. And Office, that's just an online service of Azure. You know, it's like we've completely changed the footing of the company in a, in a short amount of time. And it's all been under um, Satya's tenure, right? Uh, so things changed dramatically. So Linux on Azure. And uh, while I was in that group, I, I for some reason, I, I kind of took a step back and I went to one of our CVPs and I said, what's... What's one of your biggest business challenges? What's the CDP? Sorry. CVP, uh, corporate vice president. Sorry. Oh, CVP. Sorry. I missed yeah, that. CVP. Yeah. I spoke too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, what's one of your biggest challenges? And he said, well, there's this whole diversity thing. Diversity thing. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I'm a black guy in America. Our listeners might not know that. <laughs> yes. I am an African-American. I was born that way. And so I, I said, oh, diversity. Yeah, that's a thing. Um, keep in mind that uh, when I joined in 98, there were 2.6% African-Americans in tech roles. And I'm very specific about tech roles, mm. not sales, not janitors, not data centers, tech roles, 2.6%. Um, and I knew this because there was a lawsuit at the time by a sales guy who left the company and said, you guys are discriminatory. And at that time, I was like, oh, I don't know. I was new to the company. It's like, eh, maybe it was your situation. Who knows? But no, 2.6%. And at the time that I had this conversation with my uh, CVP, we were at a whopping 3.6%. 20 years later, wow. 20 years later, we had grown a whopping 
<laughs> All right. Is that is that just for for black people, or was that for like uh, you know any of any other ethnicity or? Uh... Oh, we're we were low across the board, and we're still we're making a lot of progress. I'd say the industry as a whole has, has gotten woke, <laughs> you know. But we're but at that time that was um, Hispanics have have typically been slightly better, but not by much uh, at that time. Uh, now I think they're they've accelerated a little bit more. Uh, women percentage of women in technical roles was pretty low. It's a lot better now, and I'm I'm sure we've released our recent diversity report, so I won't I won't quote the numbers there. But um, I know for blacks because I tracked this one is 2.6 to 3.6, and we're kind of hovering. You know, it goes up and you know, but it, it's okay for me because it's like, well, I've told our leadership, including Sate, it's like, these numbers are pathetic. We're trying to grow by too little incrementally because it's safe. We have to double the number, you know. So Leap was, uh, I created this thing called Leap and I did it with, a, I have a, a co-creator. Her name is Chun. She came from HR. Uh, so the human resources side of things, I come from engineering. And I said, well, the problem is we're just not looking in the right places for women and minorities. We think that we're going to go to MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, and just get more of them. It's like, well, there's not more to be had. <laughs> right? And this is where people back up and say, it's a pipeline problem. You know, there's just not enough. What am I supposed to do? It's like, well, look in other places. Right. So we, we said, well, where are the women? Because I know there's a lot of women who have CS degrees and they drop out of tech because they're going to raise a family and they have no avenue to come back. Right. A hiring manager who looks at a woman's uh, resume and it's like, oh, I have a PhD in CS from MIT from seven years ago. I dropped out to raise my family. They'll go, you know, into the dustbin. They won't even consider it. And I thought, well, isn't that dumb? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, seems, that seems kind of silly. I mean, someone who's got a PhD in CS and raised children. Oh, my God. They're going to be great at managing an engineering team. Yeah, they'd be great at managing engineers. Why don't we have them in here? So, you know, we just took a different approach. And I said, all right. Now, it was called Leap because I'd done this stuff in India. And it's like, well, the same formula applies. You have to cohort people in. You need a boot camp because this is what's missing. Uh, when we normally hire people, you get them from college, right? College interns. And if you don't come from college, you get industry. Industry is like minimum 10 years of experience. Otherwise, why am I looking at you, right? So college and industry, those are the two. If you're one of these people who's either a career switcher or you were in tech and you dropped out and you're coming back or whatever, you don't fall into either of those categories. So you never get in. You send your resume in and no one will look at it. Uh, so Leap says, no, hold on now. These are awesome people. Let us show you. So we just flipped the script. And really, Leap was about training the engineering, the hiring managers, how to look at people differently. Stop doing those stupid whiteboard interviews. <laughs> right? It's like, let's figure out how to interview people for their problem solving for real and their character and their ability to collaborate. And, you know, my favorite example is this woman who was a barista and she was a darn good barista. So it's like, don't you think she knows how to do customer service? Don't you think she has good empathy? You can teach them the code. They went to the coding academy. They stuck it out for a year on their own, on their own dime. That's actually better than the person who kind of floated through MIT, right? Yeah. No, I have to say, I, I really agree with you on this. I mean, I've been part of um, helping organizations to design 
interviewing processes for developers and things like that. And I was recently observing a uh, an interview process in a, in a in a client that I work with, and um, I'd say it was a very good technical interview in the sense of getting people to code. But I'm also not sure whether it was asking the right question. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what did you learn? Okay, they they wrote the B tree. But so what? Yeah, and you know, it's the, it's the subsequent questions that go along with it. Like, you know, what does this particular function in this particular language do? Like, well, they might not know that, but they can look it up. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, it's like we have the internet now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean well, it, it would be different for thirty years ago, but like, you know, now it's mostly Stack Overflow driven development, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, you can look everything up. That's that's no longer interesting. What's interesting is how they translate domain knowledge or how they work with a team to solve a problem. It's the problem solving. It's not the the specifics of how you type on a keyboard. It's like, yeah, whatever, you know, that's going to be automated soon anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, actually you guys, you guys are working on that, aren't we? We were looking at, we, I think Sam and I signed up for uh, VS Code Copilot, but. Copilot. Yeah, man. Oh my God. I tried that out the other day. But we haven't had our invite through yet. So I'm wondering if I you have. can. Sorry, Chris. Have you? I've been meaning to talk to you about this. Oh man, man, you better get coding. You're, you're, it will change your life. It's going to change your life. Well, I'm hoping you're going to be able to hook me up with that, William. <laughs> I don't know. I know some people. So let, let me let me finish out my my history before we run out of time. Uh, so yeah, I did that whole uh, the leap creation thing, and this is very important for you know. Well, what are you doing now? Um, so I did leap, and while I was um, two years into that, I got an email. <laughs> you know, hey, the office of the CTO, Kevin Scott. Uh, we'd like you to talk to you about, you know, joining the office of the CTO. And I was like, Kevin, who's that? <laughs> you know, I didn't even know we had a CTO, but we had just bought LinkedIn and Kevin was part of that package because he, he was a VP of engineering. And uh, they said, oh, Kevin, we want you to be the CTO. Um, and we didn't have an office of the CTO at that time. We've had one and not had one over the years, but at that time we didn't have one. So I, I talked to him and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. I can, I can, you know, play in that game. By the way, I got this thing called Leap and I don't think it's ready to die. So can I bring it with me? And he said, yes, which was great because that kind of elevated it to a corporate um, executive vice president level. So Kevin reports directly to Sakia. Uh, so that gave us great visibility and that allowed Leap to spread across the entire company. So two years later, Leap gets purchased, if you will, by the HR department. And now it's a full HR function. Um, this is just the way Microsoft, I won't say it's the only way. This is the way that we do our apprenticeship program is this Leap thing. That's fantastic. Right? And it's now federally accredited and worldwide and blah, blah, blah. Only a couple more tidbits. So Leap is going awesome. It becomes a big giant thing now. Um, while I was in the office of the CTO, I worked on a number of, of issues and challenges. And one of them was, hey, my badge says empower every person on the planet to achieve more. Casting my eye on Africa, we have zero engineering in Africa, literally the continent of Africa, zero engineering uh, for 1.2 billion people. Well, that doesn't sound like I'm trying to empower anybody over there. And that's like a big chunk of the planet in terms of land mass. Let's get to it. So uh, I took a trip to Kenya and Nigeria and I came back and said, we're going to put engineers there. And I did. I just hired some people. And I said, office, you guys want in on this? Microsoft Research, you want in on this? So I had friends, you know, and 
And they go, yeah, we're in, you know, up with people. And then uh, within a year, suddenly here comes the rest of the company, the Windows team. Yeah, we got this now, you know, uh, move aside, <laughs> you know, and now there's hundreds of engineers there. And, and now Africa for us as a company, we're like, Africa, that's the future. That's the growth place. That's a, you know, because it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? that's incredible. So uh, I did that. I'm not sure what's more incredible, how how quickly you've managed to pull that together or the fact that it's, what, late 20, 2010s and it didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Why weren't we there? Eh, you know, because we, we don't have the proper view of the, the world. We're very Redmond-centric, so we think that we're the smartest people on the planet. We don't look outside our ivory tower sometimes, and this is true of a lot of tech, right? Companies that came later, like Google, are probably better at spreading themselves around because they were born in the cloud, right? We weren't. Do you think that has changed in with the pandemic, with a lot of people going to remote working? Oh, absolutely. Which brings us to the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> my my latest trick. So yeah, I think that as soon as we went home back in what was it, April? I think my first thought was, first of all, this is not going to be six weeks. <laughs> like, like people were saying, um, my kid's school is like, oh, we'll be out for six weeks and we'll be back. It's like, I don't think so. Unless you have a vaccine. If you're sending us now because there's no vaccine, we're not coming back to there's a vaccine at least. Well, I think, uh, you know, at the very least, everybody needed to go home across the world and just wait inside until it had gone away. <laughs> and of course it was lumpy and we didn't quite get there, but, you know, we tried. So I thought, okay, we're gonna be we're gonna be home for a while, and then it kept dragging on, dragging on. It's like, yeah, and it's dragged along, along. And I thought this is a perfect time to push the um, distributed development model, right? Because we're all gonna be home, so it doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to be in Redmond. All you have to do is synchronize, you know, time zones or whatever. Um, so I was in a position to say, okay. How are we going to hire people? How are we going to train them? How are we going to onboard them? And where can they work? They can work anywhere. Let's push on that. Uh, so nine months ago, I had an opportunity to go to the Caribbean, U.S. Virgin Islands, and say, well, why can't we do engineering here? Why can't we do it in Atlanta? Why can't we do it in Detroit? Why can't we do it anywhere in the world? Malaysia, Cambodia, Laos, Micronesia, wherever. Because talent's everywhere, and we can no longer just pool them to Redmond. That's a silly model, right? In the face of what we've now proven that we can operate not by doing that, right? So how do we get better at actually doing the not just remote work, air quotes, how do we do distributed work? Because then you get to maximize the talent all over the planet. And not only the talent, but even the, the thinking and the product development in terms of, well, what product should I develop? If I have engineers in Kenya who are thinking about and influenced by the local market, they'll come up with products that are different than the engineers who are sitting in Redmond. And I want them to do that. I don't want all the thoughts just to come from Redmond because that's too constraining. The world is much bigger than that. So, so yeah, there you go. That, that kind of brings you up to date. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, you know, your, your advisor to, to Microsoft at the moment with, you know, really thinking about the future of, of technology and stuff like that. And I just want to dig into all that and, and how you stay relevant and, and how you, 
generally, how are you finding that role? Is that something that gives you anxiety? Because it sounds like a lot of pressure <laughs> being placed upon someone. No, you know? not really. For I mean, just look at my inventive past. And I'm not trying to say I'm some big egghead, but I've always been on the, the cutting edge of tech. You know, in some cases, I've actually been creating the cutting edge and people have been following. So, but what you do realize that is that if you get locked into any one particular thing uh, for too long, like for, I was a C++ expert back in the day. And then I left C++ as C, uh, C Sharp came along. Then I became a C Sharp expert for years while C Sharp was not really kicking butt. Uh, and then I left it, you know, and then you come back to it later. And it's like, oh, my God, this language has completely changed. So what I do to keep kind of relevant is, first of all, I read a lot, right? Like anybody, there's there's a few sites that I always look at, like uh, Y Combinator. You know, they have a great, a lot of great stuff shows up there with links off to other technologies. So you can stay kind of current with stuff like that. It's I, I don't read books as much because they're not producing as many deep tech books as we used to. So I've kind of ran out of um, interesting books to read in that way, but I'll read the occasional paper on some new technique like, okay, what's the latest um, concurrent distributed concern, current currency um, algorithm? You know, it used to be Paxos and then the RAF thing came along and then whatever. So I, I do spot reading like that. I write code. I constantly write code. Uh, like I said, in the beginning, it's like I was writing code till 4 a.m. last night. And um because uh, there's nothing like writing code to stay current with the state of the CPUs. So the CPUs is like, oh, the, the latest uh, MacBook Pro. Yeah, it's got a CPU, it's got a GPU. And now there's these neural PUs, <laughs> you know, machine learning um, nuggets. It's like, well, that didn't exist 20 years ago. What's that about? I better go write some code, right? Um, so I'm constantly writing code. I'm constantly reading other people's code on GitHub, of course, because that's how you can see, well, what's the, I mean, I remember the algorithms and the data structures that were relevant 20, 30 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. What's relevant today? Because B trees were interesting when we had slow disk drives because it was a balance between what was cached in memory and what was on drive because the drives are slow. So you don't want to hit them very often. And various structures were born of that era. But once you have SSDs, your disk drives are no longer slow. You don't even have disk drives, right? It's all RAM for the most part. So that changes the algorithms and the data structures that are more relevant today. And then you come along with machine learning models and it's like, oh, uh, we thought that um, double precision floating point numbers were super important. Turns out they're not. Floats are, 16-bit are. And uh, Tesla has proven that you can specialize even further when you're doing machine learning with their dojo uh, chips and, and all that. So I'm not overwhelmed because I there's, there's a couple of things that I do. One is that I'm as intelligent as anyone else is the first thing. So it's not like, this stuff comes from Mars and it's like, oh my God, we've never seen that before. It all builds. And then the other realization is that I don't have to know everything, right? Nobody knows everything. I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. Nobody knows everything. And the third part is just wait and it'll change again. 
So I might be kicking myself because in the 80s, actually, I learned backpropagation and neural networks and all that sort of stuff. And then I left that. And now here it is again. It's like, just wait, GPT-3 is inciting today. Just wait two years. That's not going to be the algorithm of, of choice. It's going to be something else. That machine learning uh, thing or that AI or something Tesla does is going to invent a new process. And let's just roll back a few years. This statistical model-based AI wasn't a thing until Google did it. Before that, it was a different model. Now, okay, we're all it's like statistics, statistics. Like, that's great at predicting the past. It's not good at, it, it's kind of good at looking forward, but only to the experiences that it's already seen, right? It's not good at intuition, <laughs> right? So something else is going to come along that's going to use less uh, data, less compute power to do the training in the first place. And those, those neural chips are going to be baked into our cell phones and all that. So, you know, it's going to shift what the algorithms are again. So that's how I, that's how I do it. It's not a daunting thing to me. You just look at something and you have a way to synthesize it and turn it into plain English, you know, and then hand it to someone who is also very intelligent and say, this is what I think. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's your roadmap then? Have you got like, I mean, do you have sort of some sort of milestones that you want to reach and and places you want to hit to, to grow leap and to, to have that impact? Have you got a clear vision on that? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll separate from Leap because Leap is now a corporate thing. So I birthed it. It's now, it's been sold within the corporation. It's its its own child now. So I don't have anything further on Leap itself, but I have um, this thing that I call Tequity. And I'll just explain what that is. Always good with the namings. Well, <laughs> Leap, Tequity, XML. What was, the, what was the Adams one again? Atomation. Yeah, see, started right there. <laughs> Call back to the beginning of the show. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Techwity is about just looking in the world and saying, all right, who are the biggest influencers in the, and I don't mean TikTok influencers. I mean, who are, the, who are the people that drive the planet? They're all tech billionaires, right? If you look at the top 10, 15, they're all tech billionaires. That tells us that the planet right now uh, is giving all value to technology. So if you do not have an equity share in technology, uh, you do not have an equity share in the future. And owning an iPhone is not an equity share in technology, right? You're just a consumer. Having a job at Apple where you get Apple stock is an equity share in technology. As Apple rises, as IBM, IBM, as Microsoft rises, as Google rises, those who own shares in those companies also rise. Rising tide lifts all boats. If you don't have a boat, you drown. So Techwity is about helping people, women and minorities primarily around the world, create boats using technology, right? Because the rising tide is going to lift them up. Uh, if I don't do that, and I'm not the only one, but if I don't, if I don't apply myself towards that, I'm just going to watch a bunch of people drown on the shore as I get richer, right? I got mine. I got my boat. So I want to help the other people create their boats so that they can rise up as well. So my roadmap is essentially do all the things I can to help spread techwity. And that means getting people hired into legacy companies like Microsoft, helping them start up their own companies, helping them see, seeing the rise of technologies, you know, using my, 
my crystal ball capabilities from the CTO days, helping them see why is crypto relevant and how should they play in that? Why are NFTs? What is that about? Uh, and what can their role be? Why are drones interesting? And how can you turn that into an, a VR business because meta is coming, right? This is equity. It's like, hey, 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 you don't have to go to MIT and get a PhD and blah, 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 blah. You like flying drones, don't you? Create a VR landscape of your island because then you can sell that to the tourism department and you can make money and we'll buy your company. This is equity. Uh, so this is this is my roadmap is to do. And, and unfortunately, you know, I don't want to say I'm super old, but I'm I'm in the latter half of my years, probably at this point. So there's only so much energy I have, <laughs> you know, um, I wish I could do more. But that's my roadmap is do as much as I can to get people into an equity position in technology. Nice. Well, it sounds ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like, come on, go big or go home. Right. It's like I've been on the world stage. I know how to operate because of Microsoft. I know how to operate on a world scale and I'm not going to do local. I'm going to do world. <laughs> it's like, come on now, you can do it. So yeah, that's my, that's my roadmap. I was listening to a, a marketing influencer who runs 10X the other day saying it's not go big or go home. It's go big or go bigger. <laughs> yeah, go bigger, go bigger. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and it sounds like that's what you're doing with going for this global presence here. Yeah, because it's like, what do you have to lose? Why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? It's like, you might as well try. Because even if you hit half the mark, you got halfway there. That's better than no way there. There's no, there's no point to me to rest. You can rest when you're dead. <laughs> it's like there's plenty of time to rest. In the hereafter, you can rest all you want. But today, as long as you have breath and energy and desire and passion and vision, go for it, man. Right. That's that's how I feel. I think that's a really noble goal. I think we probably covered it. Have we covered it? You think we got it? <laughs> I think we got it. Now let's write some code together. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, we're all off to go and do some paired programming. <laughs> uh, th thanks for joining. Sam, have you got any last thoughts? No, no, that was uh, that's incredible. That's really, really cool. This has been great. So thank you very much for your time, William. We very, very much appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. It's fun.